This is Green Street News. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts with the latest environmental health news you need to know. Welcome back. Remember the Havana Syndrome, that unexplained phenomenon where diplomats in Havana and China and even people at the White House suffered unexplained symptoms like headaches, dizziness, vertigo, nausea, insomnia, along with strange noises? A recent report from the intelligence community blamed the complaints on things like pesticide exposure, mass delusions, and crickets, among other things. But we know a scientist who figured out the cause almost immediately. And spoiler alert, it's none of those things. That story and Patty with the Week's headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. All right, Patty Wood, so what happened in the world of environmental health this week? Well, it's not really what happened this week, but it's what was reported this week. Yeah, okay, week. all right, fair enough. Okay, so let's just keep talking about this East Palestine because this it's is really, sto- really important. This story never stops, does it? It's just No, get... and neither does the contamination from yeah. the from the uh, the spill and the dioxin that was created when they burned it. So here we go. Uh, this was published in Common Dreams, uh, written by Jake Johnson, and the title is East Palestine Soil Contains Dioxin Levels Hundreds of Times Over Cancer Risk Threshold. East Palestine, Ohio residents' concerns about the enduring impact of last month's fiery train derailment are likely to intensify following the release of data showing that levels of dioxin in the soil near the wreck site are far higher than the cancer risk threshold recommended by federal scientists. Dioxin is a toxic and carcinogenic byproduct of burning vinyl chloride, a hazardous chemical that at least five Norfolk Southern train cars were carrying when they derailed in early February, sparking a full-blown environmental and public health disaster. Citing a report prepared by Pace Analytical, it was reported Friday that East Palestine soil showed levels of dioxin of 700 parts per trillion, that's PPT, potentially stemming from the controlled burn of vinyl chloride in the wake of the crash. The current level at which the EPA will initiate cleanup action in residential areas is 1,000 parts per trillion. However, the cleanup triggers are much lower in many states, 90 parts per trillion in Michigan, 50 parts per trillion in California. Moreover, EPA scientists in 2010 put the cancer risk threshold for dioxins in residential soil at 3.7 parts per trillion. And what they found was 700. That's right. They found 700 parts per trillion in East Palestine. Chemical experts and former EPA officials expressed alarm over the data while acknowledging it was limited to just two soil samples. Linda Birnbaum, former head of the U.S. National Toxicology Program, said, quote, The levels are not screaming high, but we have confirmed that dioxins are in East Palestine soil. The EPA must test the soil in the area more broadly. Despite outside experts' fears, EPA officials insist that the dioxin levels detected in the report are, quote, very low, unquote. Ohio's Republican Attorney General filed suit against Norfolk Southern, accusing the rail giant of recklessly endangering East Palestine residents. 
In Congress, a bipartisan group of lawmakers is working to build support for legislation that would impose more strict regulations on trains carrying hazardous materials such as vinyl chloride. During Senate testimony last week, Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw refused to endorse the bill. <laughs> There's a did. surprise, right? Yeah. But, but CNN actually confirmed that the CDC sent a team of inspectors to East Palestine and they all fell ill while they oh, were God. there. Really? With with some of the same symptoms that residents are complaining about. So this dioxin that's in the soil was created by that controlled burn. Correct. They burned the vinyl chloride. Dioxin was Correct. a result, and now all the soil right. is contaminated with dioxin yeah. at fairly astronomical right. levels. Right. I mean, this is no surprise to us. I mean, we know that when you burn plastic in an incinerator, it's the worst thing you can do, right? Because it's yeah. going to create dioxins. Burning plastic creates dioxins. Which is why firefighters have such a hard time, because all the houses today have plastic installation. We've talked they got about plastic this before. Pipes. 9-11, 9-11, the entire building had, you know, plastic components in it that were just burning like crazy. I mean, the air was filled with dioxin, probably. Last week you talked about flooring with, made out of vinyl. PVC, Maybe right? up, Do people realize they're walking on plastic? This is that no. their whole house is when plastic? They, when they, do people realize when they put a polyester fleece on their child or themselves that they're literally wearing plastic? Okay, that's depressing. What else you got? This is just from the Washington Post. Uh, Rachel Panett wrote this. It's entitled, Why Sea Creatures Are Washing Up Dead Around the World. Dead fish in Florida, beached whales in New Jersey, sea urchins, starfish, and crayfish washing ashore in New Zealand, millions of rotting fish clogging up a river in the Australian outback, a mass fish die-off in Poland, Around the world, freshwater and marine creatures are dying in large numbers, leaving experts to puzzle over the cause. In some cases, scientists say climate change may be leading to more algal blooms and other events that starve fish of oxygen. Warming oceans and marine heat waves are driving sea creatures from their normal habitats. Human activities, including coastal shipping, are also suspect. Here's a look at some of the events that led to the deaths of aquatic creatures around the globe in the past year. In Fort Myers Beach, Florida, 2019, harmful red tide algal blooms, which were present again this year, produced toxins that stain the water red and can kill fish and seabirds that eat them, as well as sicken humans. They also block sunlight from reaching underwater plants, depriving the fish of oxygen. Warmer waters caused by climate change could also spur other types of harmful algae, the EPA says. Toxic blue-green algae prefer warmer mm. temperatures. Yeah. Climate change-driven storms and extreme weather events can also lead to algal blooms by causing nutrients to run off from the land into the water. It's not just coastal environments that are at risk of harmful algal blooms, according to scientists. Droughts, which may become more frequent because of climate change, can cause marine algae to invade freshwater systems, which has happened a number of times in freshwater lakes in the United States over the past couple of decades. There's also been a spate of whale and dolphin deaths in the Northeast this winter. Mm -hmm. More than a dozen humpback whales and several critically endangered North Atlantic right whales were stranded on or near beaches from North Carolina to New York between December and early March, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Eight dolphins also washed ashore in New Jersey recently. 
Officials in New Jersey said changes in ocean temperature and water chemistry, which they attribute to climate change, could be drawing the fish that whales feed upon closer to land, putting the whales at greater risk of colliding with shipping vessels. Post-mortem examinations have indicated that ship strikes are a probable cause of many of the whale deaths. It's all about the balance of nature that we talked about a couple of weeks ago on this show, the show, how nature nature has everything balanced, and as soon as we start screwing around with it, then all kinds of unexpected things are going to happen. That's right. And what we don't understand is that we are part of nature hmm. and that we are sitting at the top of the food chain. Yeah. I mean, the very tip of the food chain, the very uppermost part of it is a human infant mm-hmm. being breastfed. Yeah. And all of these impacts that are happening down the food chain are impacting our health and our lives. And it will become more and more significant as time goes on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know about those whales that were, were washing up on the beach. It was like, what is happening here? Well, it seemed like almost every other day there were, yeah. you know, a, whales and then For there a was a, there was yeah. a pod of dolphins also. Yeah. That came in and they couldn't save any of them. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. All right. What else? This one is really interesting. It's a it's about a, a nonprofit group that's working on breast cancer. It was published in Environmental Health News, written by Ashley James, and it is entitled, Get Phthalates and Parabens Out of the Bathroom Drawer to Reduce Breast Cancer Risk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is well established that high estrogen exposure is a major breast cancer risk factor. Endocrine-disrupting chemicals that mimic estrogen, also known as xenoestrogens, have been associated with increased breast cancer risk, even at low doses. The two most common xenoestrogens, phthalates and parabens, are used widely in personal care products such as shampoos, deodorants, lotions, nail polish, fragrances, and more. While most toxicology cancer research uses animal models or cancer cell lines, a new study published in Chemosphere aimed to understand how reducing real-world exposure to these toxic affects early markers of breast cancer in people's bodies. Breast cancer survivors and researchers partnered to recruit cancer-free women who use personal care products with parabens and phthalates daily. Randomly assigning some women as controls, they collected blood, urine, and breast tissue cells from participants at the start and end of a 28-day intervention period where non-control participants switched to phthalate and paraben-free products. They observed Hmm. significant reversal of known cancer-associated cell signaling pathways, significant shifts of known cancer-associated genes to a normal profile, and significant reduction in phthalate and paraben urine levels post-intervention. Why is it taking so long for somebody to do a study like this? I, this you know, is... other groups have done studies about environmental estrogens, especially the group located on the Cape. Yeah. It's the Silent Spring Institute. They have already done this, but they were looking at dust and they were looking at things in the environment that may contain estrogenic chemicals, but they weren't actually doing what they're doing here, which is really interesting. So Polly Marshall, executive director of Breast Cancer Over Time and a co-author of the study said, quote, for us breast cancer survivors, this study changes the paradigm for breast cancer research. Instead of looking at correlations, we found a way to actually study causation in people's bodies. 
As a community-based participatory research project, breast cancer survivors were involved in all steps of the study, from generating research questions to recruiting and educating participants. The fact that pre- and post-intervention samples came from the same women keeps outside factors that could otherwise skew results, such as diet and exposure to pollution, constant. Researchers were also able to see results in a short period of time rather than waiting decades to follow a cohort of women. Funding for cancer research typically goes toward finding a cure and treatment rather than prevention. However, the potential to protect future generations is what motivated both the survivors and participants, most of whom had a loved one with breast cancer. Marshall said, quote, there are a lot of people out there who want to move beyond awareness and pink ribbons and actually do something to prevent breast cancer. The researchers said the study needs to be replicated in a larger study to confirm results. Good for them. I think it's really, it's really great. And yeah, it's I mean, about, women are just, they've just about had it, yeah, right? I would think so. And it's, we're, we're treating breast cancer the same way we did, you know, 30, 40 years ago. That's how we're treating with the same, you know, drugs. I know that we have... We have new things all the time, and we have drug trials, and we're not okay. making a lot of progress. We're not making a lot of progress, although you know people who are you know coming up with new pharmaceuticals, new chemotherapeutic drugs, would would differ from that. But women don't want to have that diagnosis. Yeah. Right. Nobody wants to be diagnosed with breast cancer. It's a really, really dangerous disease. It metastasizes fairly readily. And, you know, we wind up with all these wonderful young women with young children who are dying. And yet they have no idea that they are exposing themselves every time they get in the shower in the morning to their shampoo and whatever. And then they put lotion all over their bodies. It's loaded with phthalates and parabens, deodorant. I mean, come on. Yeah. It's about time. And I'm just, I'm, I'm really, you know, delighted to see that this group is is doing this kind of work. Well, hopefully we can have Polly on the show in a few weeks and yeah, we can talk about that. this. Okay, thanks, Patty. You're welcome. It started with headaches, then vertigo, memory loss, dizziness, lack of concentration, inability to sleep, nausea, and other physical symptoms. And then there were the sounds, strange, unusual sounds that came at night, sounds that couldn't be explained or their source discovered. Diplomats and their families in various places around the world were getting sick. The government vowed to get to the bottom of it, but now, years later, they never have, or at least they've never admitted it. So the puzzle remains unsolved. And yet, to at least one scientist and medical expert, the answer was obvious. She knew what it was. She tried to tell the government, but the government didn't want to hear it, because admitting it would have meant admitting something the government has been trying to deny for years. Some people call it the Havana Syndrome. I use the term the diplomats, quote, mystery illness, unquote. But really, you know, overwhelming evidence now suggests that this is non-ionizing radiation toxicity syndrome. That's Dr. Beatrice Gollum, director of the Gollum Research Group. She is currently professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego. She received a BS in physics from the University of Southern California, worked at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory as an engineer, then got her PhD in biology and her medical degree from UC San Diego. 
As you will hear in this interview we did a few years ago, Dr. Gollum is an expert in many things, among them the effects of exposure to radiofrequency microwave radiation. So when she heard about the diplomats in Havana and China and Moscow and workers at the White House, she knew right away what was going on. Essentially, what began to be reported in 2017 was that a set of U.S. and Canadian diplomats and their family members uh, in Havana were reporting strange episodes in which they heard unusual noises accompanied and or followed by development of symptoms that encompassed headache, ear pain, sleep problems, tinnitus, dizziness, cognitive impairment, nausea, nosebleeds, among other kinds of problems. And the work that I did, and I first wrote something up about this in October 2017 and first communicated with the top doctor at the State Department about this in early January 2018, sharing the evidence that essentially compels the conclusion that this was pulsed radiofrequency radiation. Pulsed radiofrequency radiation, part of the electromagnetic spectrum the kind of radiation that comes from your cell phone, your router, your tablet, and the cell tower down the street. Radiation is often divided into two different types, ionizing radiation and non-ionizing radiation. Ionizing radiation is the radiation in the higher end of the frequency range, from part of the ultraviolet range up through things like X-rays and gamma rays. And this is referred to as ionizing because Higher frequencies are associated with higher energy, and when the energy is high enough, it's sufficient to dislodge electrons from atoms and molecules. This is referred to as ionization. So there's sort of a mantra that is incorrect that it is only ionizing radiation that can cause damage or only ionizing radiation that can cause DNA damage. In fact, most of the evidence about the harms from ionizing radiation come not from the ionization, but actually from oxidative stress, which is the kind of free radical damage that antioxidants help to protect against. Evidence of DNA damage from non-ionizing radiation dates back at least to the work of Dr. Henry Light at University of Washington in the mid-1990s who showed that radiofrequency radiation causes both single and double-stranded DNA injury. And in fact, there are now multiple studies showing that even though this radiation is designated as non-ionizing radiation, it causes DNA injury. It just doesn't happen to do it via ionization. Despite growing evidence to the contrary, many scientists and our own federal agencies continue to subscribe to the theory that non-ionizing radiation is essentially harmless. There's basically a disinformation campaign trying to tell people that unless radiation is ionizing, it can't cause problems. And then if you point out that it isn't generally healthy to put yourself or your loved one in a microwave oven, then they will say, okay, because microwaves, again, are non-ionizing radiation. And they'll say, okay, yes, it can cause injury, but only by heating, only by thermal effects. But the evidence shows that, you know, many orders of magnitude meaning many zeros after the one, (laughs) uh, lower levels of radiation than those that cause measurable heating uh, cause injury in experimental studies. Around the globe, a growing number of people are feeling the physiological effects of exposure to non-ionizing radiation. In some cases, the effects are almost completely debilitating. People suffering from exposure are often told it's all in their head. 
Even doctors are uninformed about the condition and misdiagnose it as something else. I think there are different hypotheses about why this is. Uh, Dr. Ola Johansson, who's a researcher in Sweden who has studied health effects of electromagnetic radiation for many decades, hypothesizes, he, he mentions that there were articles on harms of radiation virtually every day in newspapers up until around the mid-1990s. And his hypothesis is that that's around the time that microwave frequencies began being used in commercial communication devices. I think another hypothesis might be that's around the time that single and double-strand DNA breaks were shown uh, by Dr. Henry Lai, and that, that industry began funding many scientists to essentially try to be the third-party spokespersons exactly to put out the messaging that this is not harmful. So what might explain the tendency of some people to feel the effects of radiofrequency radiation while others do not? Dr. Gaum gave us an analogy to medicines that interact with ultraviolet light. With ultraviolet light, uh, it is acknowledged that there is what is called phototoxicity that occurs either with excess ultraviolet light or with exposures that enhance the toxicity of ultraviolet light. And so in, in that setting, it's referred to as photosensitivity. And so there are drugs and chemicals such as fluoroquinolone antibiotics that can be photosensitizing. And essentially what photosensitization is, is phototoxicity occurring at doses of ultraviolet light that don't cause problems in other people. With certain antibiotics, for example, people are urged to avoid sunshine because these agents are photosensitizing, meaning that you are vulnerable to phototoxicity, but at a dose of ultraviolet that would, in many people, not cause a problem. But analogously, our data suggests that with radiofrequency radiation, with non-ionizing radiation, there is both the phenomenon of non-ionizing radiation toxicity and there is the phenomenon of non-ionizing radiation sensitivity, which is experience of toxicity at doses lower than those that cause most people problems. And once again, we are identifying some of the factors that trigger this greater sensitivity, and some of them appear to be shared with those that sensitize to radiation in other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. So let's go back to the diplomats and White House staff who have reported symptoms and who remain sensitive to this day. Many of them reported hearing strange sounds, especially at night. Part of the radiofrequency range that's below the microwave range and part of the microwave range can cause the perception of strange noises. And we'll go back for a minute and mention that radiation and sound are not the same thing. And this is often very confusing because both of them are waves and both of them are measured in hertz or cycles per second. But electromagnetic waves are kind of like sine waves. They're what are called transverse waves, meaning that the direction of variation, of waviness, is perpendicular to the direction of travel. Sound are what are called longitudinal waves, meaning they're pressure waves, and the pressure varies in the direction of travel. And so sound waves and light waves or radiofrequency waves are not the same thing. But under these exceptional circumstances, radiofrequency radiation causes the brain to perceive that there is sound. And it is known that this occurs only with pulse radiation and only with radiation within a certain frequency range. It's also known that the nature of the sound 
that's perceived does not depend on the frequency, although it only occurs for certain frequencies. It depends on the, the characteristics of the pulses and also the head dimensions of the individual. So this same stimulus will be perceived differently from person to person because people have different head dimensions. And the character of the sounds that are produced can encompass chirping, clicking, grinding, uh, hissing, buzzing. So a range of different sounds, and they can seem completely like natural sounds, but they differ from actual sounds in key ways. And this is important because of the characteristics of sounds that were reported by diplomats. First, you know, different diplomats heard different sounds, which you would not expect if there were a similar stimulus, but you would specifically expect if it were this. These sounds were reported essentially exclusively at night, and there would be no particular reason why if it were a sound source it would only be heard at night. But this microwave auditory effect can only be perceived in settings of low ambient noise. So unless it had been only perceived in settings of low ambient noise, this would have excluded radio frequency radiation as the cause. But in fact, it was expressly reported that this was essentially heard only at night. And the third characteristic is that it was reported to be tightly localized in space. Some newspaper articles reported that it, there was, quote, laser-like localization in space, which was said to, quote, defy known physics. Well, that defies the physics of sound waves, but it's completely consistent with the physics of electromagnetic waves. In fact, lasers are electromagnetic waves, so of course they can occur with laser-like specificity. And examples are that, you know, in one instance, a diplomat, you know, got out of bed and moved a few feet away, and the sound, you know, went away, and then he moves back, the sound comes back. Or in another case, someone heard an apparently loud-sounding noise, but someone else in the, quote, immediate vicinity heard nothing. So this laser-like specificity is inconsistent with sound waves, but is expected with radiofrequency radiation. There have been lots of theories advanced about the cause of the Havana syndrome symptoms, from pesticides to mass delusions to crickets, but nothing that has convinced Dr. Gollum that her immediate diagnosis was incorrect. What does compel the conclusion that this is pulsed radiofrequency radiation is essentially a three-pillared argument. The specific characteristics of the noises that were reported, the qualitative and quantitative, meaning what fractions of people reported what symptoms, nature of the symptoms that were reported, as well as, by the way, the objectively measurable signs, and then also the past known history of use of you know, radiofrequency radiation in the embassy setting, which is kind of a, a subsidiary third pillar. But it turns out that, yes, it's true that radiofrequency radiation, microwave radiation, part of the radiofrequency range that's below the microwave range and part of the microwave range can cause the perception of strange noises. So where are we? Our societal exposure to radiofrequency radiation continues to mount with every new cell phone and every new small cell antenna. The government seems disinclined or even afraid to admit that this radiation is having a profound and damaging physical effect on people of all ages, and issuing reports that completely ignore even the possibility that exposure could explain the symptoms suffered by government employees and tens of thousands of other individuals around the world. So there has been a desire to downplay this, and whether these are diplomatic considerations you know, or other considerations I don't entirely know. Certainly, you know, as somebody who's studied Gulf War illness for decades and has seen the, the sort of compounding of uh, harm and suffering that can come from delays and denials to acknowledging problems, I certainly personally support 
being open about the character of the exposure and the problem, you know, with those who are potentially exposed in order to, you know, mitigate this issue going forward. Dr. Beatrice Gollum, MD, PhD, and Director of the Gollum Research Group, part of the UC San Diego Health System. You can learn more about Dr. Gollum and her work on her website, www.gollumresearchgroup.org. That's G-O-L-O-M-B researchgroup.org. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Beatrice Gollum. Our engineer, David McAllister, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Patricia Bridges. If you enjoyed this episode of Green Street News and think more people should know about these issues, please tell your friends, won't you? We appreciate it. You can also learn more about us and the show on our website, greenstreetnews.org. You can also give us your feedback on the show. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening.